In this episode of the Crumpled Papers podcast, I am joined by Marilyn Crete to discuss her personal journey with grief, the way her church community navigated her trials, and how a letter written to address their church's problems affected her grief and made her family's name notorious worldwide. This week's conversation is based on the topics and themes in chapter 20 of my book, A Jumble of Crumpled Papers. If you enjoyed today's conversation and haven't read the book, the link to pick it up is in the description below. If you're a first time listener, I would highly recommend you go back and listen to our intro episode, episode zero, to get brought up to speed on what this podcast is all about. But without further ado, enjoy the episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Crumple Papers podcast. My name is Austin Knoll, and on today's episode, I have a very special guest. I have Marilyn Crete, who, for many of you listening, you may recognize, you may have seen the title and recognize the last name, and you may have thought, hmm, I wonder if it's, that, if it's that Crete, and it is that Crete. And I know many of my audience, a big percentage, is from my former church organization. However, I also know there are many listeners who aren't. So if you're not from our organization, you probably don't recognize this, what is a notorious last name in our organization. And if you have no idea who, who, who the Cretes are, this will be a very interesting conversation for you. And don't worry, everything will be filled in as we go. And you will learn all about the Crete's story and Marilyn's story and why their names have become so infamous among our churches. But before then, Marilyn, how are you doing? Thank you for being on. I'm doing great. I'm so excited to have this talk with you. I really am. I'm, I'm so excited. I mean, I saw your, I came across your book, your new book on Amazon because I was on my page for my book and I went down to the uh, users who bought your book also bought and I said oh is that is that Marilyn Crete and it was you and I read the book and it was fantastic and we'll get into all of that but first off I just want to say or, or comment on the fact that it's so I guess the word is surreal because I was born in 98 and born into our church organization our shared organization and when the letter came out, which we'll get into at some, uh, later on. For those of you who don't know what that is, then we'll figure it out. If you do know what it is, then you know. When that came out in the early 2000s, I was young enough where I had no idea what was going on. So I saw the effects of it, kind of. As I grew up, it was always, oh, the Crete letter, the Crete letter. Oh, this had such an impact in this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so your, your name, it's so funny because your name was a part of my church life and my friends. Mm-hmm. Any of them, if I asked them about it, 98% of them would know what I'm talking about. And it's so interesting to now be connected with you. And it was so cool that I got to read your book and hear your side of so much of, of the church story, of the letter story, of your own personal story. And I'm so excited to talk with you about it. So once again, thank you for being on. Thank you. So I want to ask you to start off a question that I ask every guest, and that is, would you please be so kind as to give us a general overview of yourself and your background, particularly in regards to your church and faith journey? Yeah. Well, I I grew up, I was kind of a rebel. I was a runaway. Um, I left home when I was 14 and ran away to Vancouver, 800 miles away and ended up in a girl's home and then ended up living up on my own pretty young at 16. And I guess the best way to describe me at that point was I was kind of a hippie, uh, not kind of like I was a hippie. <laughs> and um, 
I grew up, my, my family went to the United Church of Canada and I, I kind of got a sour taste in my mouth because of what was going on in my family life. And, you know, our so-called Christian family didn't, to me, didn't, you know, I guess mostly the example of my, my mother in particular didn't endear me to um, what I, you know, what I, how I viewed Christianity. And so I, I threw that out pretty early in my life, but I was always spiritually minded and I was very, I guess I was a, a new ager because I was really into all kinds of, you know, yeah, just new age teachings, new age teachers. I used to go to workshops and retreats and do all kinds of crazy stuff like rebirthing and yeah, uh, all, 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 this, all that stuff. And, um, and I was really searching. I was, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't just playing around with it. I was really looking for answers. And it wasn't till, um, I guess in my, early 20s my fiance and I set off for this bicycle trip to South America and we never completed the trip because he ended up dying of cancer and Mm. he was so so special to me we had a very profound relationship and um, we were were planning to marry we had our whole lives planned out and I had no plan b so after he died I was still really in denial about that I got on my bicycle and just started traveling around by myself solo living in my little yellow tent. Mm. And that was, I mean, pretty cool. This is actually all of my first memoirs. So if, if people want more details, I, I... Yes, you have two memoirs at the po- moment. One yeah. is these earlier years and the second yeah. is... Paradise Road is this part of my story. And I think I, I write it much better than I'm telling it now. So I want to urge people, sure. if you're curious, to get the book and you'll get a better a better telling of it. But anyway, so I was on, I started just kind of riding all over the place by myself on the bicycle. And it was on one of those trips I was actually at that point, I was in Montana and I won't get into all the details, but God did a number of really quite amazing and very personalized things to grab my attention. Mm. And ultimately it got me to sitting down and opening the Bible for myself. I was, I guess I was 24 at that point. And I just started reading the gospel of John and I was just totally convicted and stuck on, you know, who Jesus claims to be. And it was basically Mm. like, Okay, if he if he's everything he's claiming to be, then everything I believe is out the window, and he needs to be who I follow and yeah. serve and listen to. So it was really a battle about you know where is truth and what is truth, and I, I was, became you know quickly convinced from reading the Gospel of John that she, that he was the way, the truth, the life. And um, at that point, I decided like since not if this is true, but since this is true, I want, I want to live the rest of my life just serving, serving Jesus, serving God. So I started searching. I hadn't even found a church at this point. I started searching for a church. I was really searching more for a mission. I really mm-hmm. wanted to just give my life to something, to, to some way to serve God and, and share this amazing truth that I found in Christ. So that, that part led to my searching. I started going to all these different churches. I get up the <laughs> phone book yellow pages back in the day and and go through church meetings and church times and i try to go to like three church services every sunday to check them out wow yeah so very intentional searching for this i was very intentional i was riding my bike from one church to another and (laughs) and i was also wrestling with maybe i was i rode away to mother Teresa. i wanted maybe go to india and serve in calcutta or maybe i should go to bible college i was looking into that I had different options, but it was like I, I was all in and I wanted to do something, you know, with my life that would honor God. Yeah. And so um, at that point, I ended up taking a trip out to Toronto and Montreal. And it was at that time that I met Henry and Henry was three years younger than I am. He was a young guy. He had just moved to downtown Toronto on his own to start a street ministry. And mm. 
Then he got a friend named Paul to join him. So there was Henry and Paul and his little, his little ministry they started. I found out about it by reading all these posters, they plastered posters all up and down Young Street. <laughs> and I thought, this must be such a huge group because they've got hundreds of posters everywhere. And when I phoned to find out what they were and what they were doing, it was basically just these two young guys. With a huge marketing budget. <laughs> With a huge marketing yeah. They poured it all into the, these handmade posters and pasting them on all, this, all the available surfaces on Young Street. Anyway, I ended up attending one of their meetings and then they had a little one bedroom apartment right downtown Toronto. And I was really blown away. I've been to all these different churches and groups and things. And I was blown away, these two young guys, how well they knew the Bible how much they loved the Bible and how much they were honoring and serving God, how much they were serving the community and just bringing people in off the streets. And I was like, this is really, this is the closest thing I've seen to real Christianity. Mm. So I stuck around and Henry ended up studying the Bible further with me and taught me more about baptism. And um, yeah, he baptized me. And then I was like, this is, this is what I want to attach myself to. This is, this is a mission worth joining. So mm. Yeah, we started off and we started off just friends. I was like, I was, I was sworn off relationships. I've had a lot of relationships in my life. Like if I'm going to devote myself to God, I think I better take like a five-year break here and just, just, yeah. Cause I knew that I would get very easily distracted by a new relationship, but ended up a few months later, just kind of falling in love with Henry. And I knew he had feelings for me and, you know, our, our mission and our goals seemed to align. And so we ended up getting married. And carried on with our little house church ministry and was growing and was fun. But we knew, like, we just felt like we didn't know how to help people grow. Like we could help people become Christians, but we didn't know how to help them grow once they were converted. Yeah. So we heard about this church in Boston through different friends and decided we'd go check it out. And we thought, well, we'll go for, we'll go for a few days and get some pointers and come back and just do whatever they're doing. Because we heard this church was really growing and really. Sure. Yeah. So. We made this trip out to Boston and before we had even met with the church formally, like we, I think we got there on like a Monday or something. We were staying in the home of a couple of disciples. They were training for the ministry. They just had a revolving door of people coming through. There was, was a campus mm-hmm. ministry. People were coming through. Everybody was happy. Everybody was yeah. into the Bible. People were just like so engaged and it was amazing. We'd never seen anything like it. And then yeah. we went, yeah, then we met, you know, we went to the midweek service. It was like 500 people. Most of them hadn't been Christians for more than a year. Right. And it was just, it just blew my mind. And it, at that point I was like, this is the closest I've seen to the New Testament church ever. It's, this is what I've longed to see. And yeah. we decided that, you know, a few days there wasn't going to cut it. We needed to move there and, and train. So we went back and told a little group that we were going to do that. And we came back to Boston and we raised a little support from Canada to, to support ourselves from some Christians there. Yep. And we we're just going to train for the ministry and, and try to learn how to do it better. And that yep. was basically, yeah. So that's how we ended up with this particular church organization back in the early days. So this was 1981. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And the church there was just doing amazing. And yeah, it was a very, very exciting time to be there. Yeah. That's so, because for context, my, I mean, for later context, I guess, yeah. my dad joined, he was the first baptism in the Los Angeles region, branch of our organization, wow. 30 something years ago, back in, I think it was like 89, late 80s. So the year, year before that. So it's interesting because yeah. I know our, for those unaware, our church organization is worldwide and started in Boston. 
and grew from there. And so it's very similar even because I was in the campus ministry at UCLA all these years later, and it's very a similar structure of, and not bad, just, just the energy. There's an, there's an energy because there's yeah. young people, many who are, who are not very far along on their spiritual journeys. They're very new, and they're, they're, they're kind of been opened up to mm-hmm. the possibility of, of so much promise. And it's, it's very intriguing. So, Marilyn, you are here on episode 20 of the mm-hmm. podcast, which is based off of chapter 20 in my book, which is titled The Chance to Say Goodbye. And the chapter itself deals with some topics we'll get into a little bit later about taking some moments to mentally go back and theoretically say, if I had the chance to go back to certain people and things and say goodbye to them and get some closure Mm -hmm. uh, before leaving Mm -hmm. my spiritual community, what would I go back to and what would I say? And this conversation, I wanted to branch out a little bit on a topic that was part of that chapter but I wanted to bring that up to the surface and make that the forefront of this conversation because that chapter is very much just my little personal things. And I wanted to branch out and make it a, and talk about the, the central topic, which is grief. And that is the central idea in a theme in your book, in mm. your, your newest book, which is, I haven't the title yet. It's The Box Must Be Empty, which, which was such an intriguing title to me because my title was also contextual, where you don't quite get off the front. Mine is called A Jumble of Crumpled Papers, which people yeah. go, hmm. What does that mean? And people go, the box must be empty. Yes, right? And So I was very interested. I love those kind of titles where it doesn't give it to you immediately. I'm like, oh, I wonder what page I'll finally find out what this is. And I I wanted to give you a chance before we go into anything else to tell us a bit about the book and your journey with grief that you write about. Sure, yeah. Um, Well, yeah, so I've I've got these two memoirs and I I have to say that for... For many, many years, I kind of carried them inside me and I knew that I was going to, one day I was going to write these books. Mm-hmm. The first book, Paradise Road, because I had kind of a, a colorful and very non, kind of unconventional uh, life. And, you know, a lot of the things I write about in that, in that part of the story were, are, were hard and difficult, but I can look back on them and tell, you know, tell the story with a bit of humor and whatever. And sure. so I wanted to write that story. I just thought it would be a very, it's the kind of book that I'd like to read, you know, the kind of story. I. Mm-hmm. I yep. Want. Yes. And the second one, um, The Box Must Be Empty, was really, it's the book that I wished I could have found when I started going through this heavy, heavy grief journey. Mm. And what basically happened is that, so I, I mentioned earlier about my fiance dying of cancer. And just be, I think because I was so young and the way it happened, and I, I explain a lot of the reasons that I kind of realized later, but for many, many reasons, I wasn't capable or ready to deal with the grief when he died. And by jumping on the bike and going riding and escaping and going off for two years and yeah. basically cutting myself off from everybody that knew him, knew us as a couple, whatever, I just sort of started everything fresh again. And then I went from that to becoming a Christian, to meeting right. Henry, to getting married, to being in the ministry. And I never went back and really dealt with that grief. And I didn't realize at the time, but it was very alive and very suppressed. I pushed it down Hmm. long way, deep way. And so it wasn't until um, it it tried to poke up a few times along the way, but it wasn't really till 20 years later that it just wouldn't stay down anymore. And a few, a few things like watching a movie and a couple of different events in my life just brought it back with a vengeance. And all of a sudden I was like, I was experiencing this grief as if it had just happened. And I felt like I was at that point, I was, you know, in my early forties, but I felt like I was 24 again Hmm. or 22. 
that Jack had just died and the feelings were that fresh and that raw and that overwhelming. And um, as you can imagine, it was very inconvenient. <laughs> to, <laughs> I bet. You know, I'm married oh, to somebody yeah. else. I've got two kids. I've got, I'm in the ministry. I'm super busy. You know, all of a sudden. You have a life. I, yeah. I, yeah. I have a life, a very full life. And yet this grief was just overwhelming me. Yeah. And what, you know, one of the things that I, when I was going through it, I was like, does any, has this ever happened to anybody? Like I, I'd mentioned it to some people and everybody's kind of like, whoa, no, I've never heard of that. And, yeah. and I, you know, went to the library and I, I read every book I could about grief or whatever. I could never find any reference to something like this happening. Like I did find there was some reference to delayed grief, but most of that was referring to, yeah, your grief goes, you, you put it off for a year or two and then it comes back and, you know, now you're ready to deal right. with it. Okay, what about those of us that put it off for 20 years? Like, is there yeah, that times 10? What's yeah. the thing for that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there a book about that? And so right. I couldn't find that book. I couldn't find that other person. And I'm like, I'm going to write this book, number one, so that I can share my story with anybody out there that might need it. And mm-hmm. number two, I hope that by, by writing it, I will find some people finally that can say, yeah, I had a similar thing happen to me. And to be honest, I haven't really had that response yet either. Like, nobody has come and said, I had that 20 year gap, but I'm still waiting. But mm, anyway, yes. <laughs> yeah. So the book started, the book was basically about, you know, dealing with this profoundly delayed and complicated grief and how I, you know, the, all the things I did that helped, it didn't help to, to try to process it. Mm-hmm. But then as I started writing it and the point in my life when I was writing it, it, it really dovetailed into a lot of other grief. Like grief doesn't remain. It doesn't just sit in our heart, like a separate entity. I think mm-hmm. it's like, kind of this living thing and it pulls in all your prior griefs and all your present griefs and all your future griefs. They're all going to get pulled in there. And so when it came time to write the book, it's like, this is, this is about a lot more than just the grief over my, my dead fiance. This is a a lot of grief that I had about things that happened to me in the church organization and our journey through that. And Yeah. yeah, a lot of, a lot of things that just kind of were all connected. And so it became a book that was, about about Jack and that grief, but a lot of it has to do with the grief of being part of something that is wonderful and exciting. And, you know, it was, like, it was my total life for so many years. And then what happens yeah. when that bubble bursts? What happens when things go a different direction? Yeah. So I, I and I really hope and pray that it, it'll help people that are on that part of the journey to connect with their own feelings. Yeah, that, that's such a big, I'm sure we'll touch on this too. It's such a big aspect when, and a big central kind of through line I was getting from reading was kind of the damage, I guess, but the complication to put it lightly that can be presented to you when your current situations, your current context doesn't do anything to alleviate or help you deal with the grief that you're trying to deal with from before where if, I mean, even if there was nothing in your present accruing that, it would still be a whole journey and a, and a thing to have to deal with your past grief, but to have stuff in the present still continuing to yeah. pile on top of that, yeah. like forget trying to deal with the original because you're trying to deal with the most present top of that mountain that keeps getting higher. Exactly. And I felt that through the book. I really yeah. did. And yeah. you did a good job of writing that and it was painful. <laughs> yeah, that will happen and this happened to a lot of people. And I think as yeah. we get older, my huge grief happened when I was really young. I was 22 and you know, I, I remember even before that happened to me, I, whenever I met somebody who'd maybe lost a parent as a child, I was like, I was like, yeah. how do you recover from that? Like, I couldn't even grasp how you would even 
you know, live with that kind of grief. Right. But, you know, a lot of people are able to get through, you know, a lot more years before they're hit with something that big. But I think as you get older, it's inevitable that you're going to have a lot of, a lot of griefs. Yeah. And if we don't, and a lot of them, I think we don't even identify mm. as a grief. Like, I think we'll probably get into that in the discussion, but, you know, it's easy to say when some, when somebody dies, okay, that's grief, right? But a lot right. of other things happen to us in our life that are just as painful or disorienting, mm. but we may not see it as grief. And that might keep us from, you know, knowing what to do with it. We, we undermine it because it, yeah. it's, it's and, and we kind of push it aside as, oh, that's not something that's worth the time to actually divest into resolving because it's not yeah. grief. We don't label it as that. So it doesn't acquire the attention. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So let's continue this conversation with context of your book and the grief and your grief journey through this. From your book, I, I really gathered that your experience with grief could roughly, and you've already kind of touched on this, could be separated roughly into two bigger kind of umbrella categories. And one is your personal life with your grief personal life. And one is what you started to touch on is the grief accruing in your, your church religious life. And I wanted to know what were some of the main contributing factors of your grief in each of these contexts. You've, you've started to name your fiance, yeah. um, which, which, which was the biggest, I believe yeah. in your book, the biggest foundation of this grief. That was the foundational grief that things started to pile on top of. So yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I guess, yeah, they kind of, I guess I would divide it to uh, my, maybe my pre-Christian griefs and then my post-Christian griefs. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but definitely Jack was the, the, the big one because, but the yeah. reason it was so big is because I had lost my relationship with both my parents. Um, hmm. When I ran away from home, I ran away because my mother was really, she didn't like me. She didn't, you know, she said she loved me, but she told me when I was nine that she didn't like me as a person. And she spent hmm. a lot of time just, just, haranguing me and putting me down and belittling me and making my life really miserable and that was really the impetus for me to run away was just to get away from that because I just felt like it was it was killing me and I ended up with in the girls home and there were attempts made to to get you know sit down with a counselor and and hear both sides but it was impossible because my mother wouldn't yield one inch like she would never Mm. own that any of this was her it was all my fault it was all you know, I was just a bad kid. I was a bad person. And I was doing things like I was experimenting with drugs and going to parties and stuff. So, you know, she could easily yep. throw that and say, this is all you, but she sure. could never say, even think, let herself think, maybe I could change, maybe I contributed to this. And in yeah. fact, at the girls home that we had just a few attempts to try to have these talks, my mother would hijack every appointment. She would just take it over, just rat- ranting and ranting and ranting about what a terrible person I was. And finally, yeah. the the counselor there was like, you know what, this is your mother's toxic. It's not going to work. You just need to cut her out of my life. So they actually went to court and got, I was put into like, put into under the care of the government and sure. parents' rights were terminated. And there were six years when I had no contact with my parents. And then after I met Jack, he did so much for my confidence. And I finally mm. felt like somebody loved me and appreciated me and brought out the best in me. And that confidence gave me the courage to reach out to my parents again. Oh, yeah. And they were eager to have me back, but there was no discussion about the past. And right. there was no yeah. hint of an apology from my mom. And so moving forward with her, I, you know, I, and my dad, I guess my dad's part was he was just kind of, he just kind of let her take over. He didn't, yeah. he didn't take, he didn't stand up for me. He didn't, he didn't rally to me at all. He just kind of, and she was, you know, she was very overpowering, but he let it happen is kind of how I saw it. So anyway, so yeah. a lot of my, a lot of the buried grief that I didn't even realize I was carrying was about those relationships with my parents that uh, even though I was back in relationship with them on the surface, we had never 
we never dug into what had gone on and right. never healed the wound that, you know, the, that those childhood wounds that were very, very deep. So, so those, I think, so my, my mom, my dad and Jack were the big griefs prior to becoming a Christian. Yeah. And then after becoming a Christian, I think the griefs were, we, we, Henry and I, you know, in the full-time ministry with this organization, the church we were with, ended up sending us all over the world and we, they moved yeah. us a lot, a lot, a lot. And you'll get that in my second book. And yeah. there was a lot of leaving places without any advance warning. There's a lot of being told to move somewhere else without us wanting to. And a lot of times we'd go to a place and we'd be sort of promised that, hey, dig in, this is going to be home, make the, you know, just just go for it, right? You can, you're going to be here. Yeah. And dig your roots in, right? Yeah, dig your roots in. And I would do that every single time. Like, it's kind of like, you know, I don't know if you're, you're probably too young to remember the, the Peanuts comic strip, but. Oh, I know. Yes, yeah, generally. You know, yeah, of Lucy course. would promise to hold the, the football for Charlie Brown. And pull it up. And every time she, yeah. And that was kind of like, that's what's going on with, you know, every time. That's I, a good I way to look at that. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So each time I'm like, okay, this is it. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm brokenhearted about the last place I left, but I'm going to give my heart to this one. And yeah. that was just really accruing and accruing and accruing. And and our life was at such a fast pace that there was never time to deal with any of that or mm -hmm. even acknowledgement from the people that were leading that that maybe I did have some stuff to, to process. So that yeah. really, really took a toll, a huge toll on me. And you, in your book, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, it was what, you had to move 16 times in like 17 years? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I can I think my life, yeah, I've moved like I've moved almost 60 times in my life. But wow. a lot of those moves in the church were, yeah, there were a lot. And yeah, yeah, different reasons for some of them. But the bottom line is, yeah, we we moved way more times than anybody should ever have to move. And it yeah. takes a toll. It really does. So, yeah. And then the big grief of, you know, kind of just kind of parting ways with that, with the church, which was right. totally was my whole life. It was our work, it was our play, it was our friends, it was our everything, right? And to leave that leave that behind, uh, that's that's a huge grief too. Huge yeah, grief. I mean, every, not every, but most of the episodes I've had when getting to this kind of idea of, at least in the most recent episodes where we're transitioning to a lot of people's experiences, stepping out of their church, that idea of identity comes in and home and community and your place where you belong and are known and know people yeah. authentically, more or less, a different place, yeah. you know, different people. And to experience the leaving, stepping out completely is such a hard thing because of what I just said of that's yeah. where you have the, the context with which you most relate the most of yourself to. Totally. Yeah. And that's hard. Just, I mean, for me, that's what my book is all about is getting that, that journey through that and eventually deciding to leave and how that affected me. Yet, yeah. in a way, you, of course, experienced that big stepping out, but many smaller versions of that exact same thing yeah, yeah. time and time again, where you'd find a different state, a different city, different country, whatever, different home church, different people, different community, different house, different schools, different small groups and investing. And then each time or mo most times believing this is the one I, I'm allowed to do that because yeah. it'll be worth the investment because it, it'll last. Yeah. And then being told, nope, got to go again. Yeah. And while still being in that church, which is, which is wild because of how much I know from my experience, the, the lasting effects of just, and the hurt of just leaving that one, one time. Yeah. So that's really, really interesting because 
I'm just trying to imagine having to experience and navigate that each time while, and when you're still in it, having to navigate the leaving the last one, but while still having to be present to invest yourself in your current situation again and again and again, where once I left mine, it was done. So I could immediately, or when I was ready, whenever I wanted to, I was able to look back and start processing. Yeah. But you kind of weren't, you were kind of forced to delay it again and again and again because you didn't have time. Yeah, because you know we had these really, really intense expectations on us, and right. every time we were, every time we, you know, we moved to a, a new church to start leading that congregation, or whatever the expectation was, like from from day one, you're getting to you're getting to know all the people on staff. You're getting or their staff. You're getting to know all the members by name. You're having a yeah. dinner. I mean, it's just like it's 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 not even a not even a week of like take a week to just unpack. No, it was like. I, I used to unpack it a day and, you know, by day two, it's like full on into building these new relationships. Right. And so, yeah. And, and it really, it started catching up to me to where I couldn't sure. do it. I couldn't give my heart the same way anymore. And then I feel guilty and, you know. Right. It, it makes total sense. It's totally natural, that response. And then it's expectation of almost in some cases, at least in my experience and those I've talked to, it's a little bit of, oh, if you're exhibiting signs of having to deal with that, you're kind of being a little prideful, not looking at the current, you're kind of not exactly where your heart should be aligned yeah, to exactly. exactly. Yeah. Which is a, it's a dangerous road to traverse because yeah. it's so easily wavers on both sides where you can easily fall off and, and, and really get some damaging effects to that, which you talk about in your book. Yeah. So I want to ask, kind of going along these lines, specifically in regards to this church context, how was your grief treated and navigated by the church itself and those in it? And how did those responses affect you? In your grief, we've kind of touched on this a bit. Yeah. Well, uh, the first one, I, and I think I, did, I mentioned this, I think, in the book as well. When we, when we moved to Boston, we moved there just before our, just after, we've been married a year, basically. Yeah. So it was my first year in Boston, my second year of marriage, that I started having some memories or feelings or something about Jack was kind of starting to come up a bit. And I was very concerned about it because it didn't, didn't seem appropriate to me. And so sure. I, I had an appointment, I booked, you had these we coveted breakfast appointments with the main leader there. And so I had yeah. this breakfast appointment with him and I, you know, I prayed about it. And like, I'm going to, I'm going to ask, I'm going to tell him about this and ask him what I should do because I want to deal with this properly. Right. And mm-hmm. so I did, I brought it up to him and his response was simply like a sister, that relationship was a, it was an immoral relationship from your pre-Christian t- past. There's no place for it in your life anymore. You just mm-hmm. need to put that to, it was kind of a, you just need to put that to, you just need to erase it or whatever. A definitive immediately. It, written yeah. Off. It was like a 30 second canceled it was basically shut me down and yeah. it did shut me down I, th- I went away from that feeling like oh man I, I i can't give any space to that in my life and and in all fairness i i did bring it up with this person the main leader a few years later uh, we were going to some other counseling stuff with him and his wife whatever and i and they had the courtesy to ask me you know is there anything anything that in our relationship that you think might be a hindrance to what we're dealing with now i'm like well yeah actually this this conversation i had with you years ago about jack really yeah. affected me and when i brought it up to him he was quick to apologize but he had no memory of saying that no memory mm-hmm. at all right so which yeah. goes to show you know we can when you have a position of authority over someone you can easily say things that have yeah. huge effects on people and it's, it's just routine it's just yeah. oh that's the response here you go yeah yeah but yeah so he did apologize but by that the you know, damage was already done so anyway when yeah. When the grief finally came up 20 years down the road, when the grief came up big time again, I was just a basket case, basically. And I was, you know, I went to see one of our church counselors and um, I was totally falling apart. 
And so they, I think they recognized at that point that I really needed help. And to their credit, they were quick to quick to give that support. And again, this story I tell better in the book, but anyway, they, they ended up moving our entire family to another city so that I could mm. meet with this church member, full-time therapist and yeah. help from, from him. And that's a big part of my story in the book. But so there was that support initially, but then, so there was a six, it was six months for me to deal with it. And then after the six months was over, and my therapist failed me miserably. And yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't healed at all, but it was time to get back, you know, back to the ministry, back, back to work. Um, there right. wasn't a lot of sympathy for me at that point. It was kind of like, okay, you, you, we gave you that time. They'd never done that. Like to give us a six month, kind of a semi-sabbatical. Yeah. Give us that it was unheard of in our churches, right? So it was like, wow, we've done this for you. We we moved with other a lot of other people around to accommodate your problem. And we gave you that time and it's just time to, you know. Put it behind you so yeah. that's kind of how it was handled and then as far as the, the grief the leaving places behind it was basically yeah. not really acknowledged much and again it, it came up a big in a big way when we we were in africa for about six years and we just loved wow. being in africa and we came back totally against our will and desire and expectation and we landed in Washington, D.C., which was the last place in the world that I... A big to. difference from Africa. A big difference, especially in November. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And um, I was I was doing really... I was really emotional at that point, too. I was falling apart again. And it was really... I didn't even realize what it was affecting me. But it was grief over leaving Africa behind. And I was told at that point, kind of like, buckle up. Oh, and I was told by another leader who told me, you know what? You it was a privilege. You guys had the privilege of going to Africa. You were lucky to get that opportunity. Not many people get that opportunity, but now you're here. So just consider yourself lucky and crank the ministry here. And that's how it was dealt with. And that yeah, that didn't help much to be told that. Like like the uh the antidote for grief is not solely just gratitude. That's not no. what's gonna solve it. No. A lot of times people go to that. And when you're in grief or whatever, it's like, no, you should be grateful for the time you had or what you get to experience that. It's like, you're not wrong, but that's not going to solve the way I'm feeling about the loss of it. Yeah, exactly. And that's a whole different thing about these many churches, not many churches, but our church and other churches too, not just ours, is a lot of leaders aren't, aren't trained in the aspects of dealing with uh, those kind of things. Yeah, yeah. And, and the problem is when they're put in positions that they're required to. and it doesn't quite work yeah and a lot you know the people that were over us they weren't they weren't moving around like we were they were you know a right. lot of them a lot of them were they were out in the mission field for years at the place where they wanted to be and they stayed in that one place and they built that ministry and and then they chose when they wanted to leave it and come back to the states what most of them did at that point because the goal was to raise up a church that all the local people could run it whatever but it was all on their terms it was like when they felt ready to go when they felt ready to come back and then when they come back to the states they would typically choose where they want to live and then they right. they bring all their friends and they were, you know, very few of them had anything close to our experience. Yeah. They, they couldn't relate to the same being, no. being subject to the decisions of, or the whims of whatever yeah. the church needed. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny you mentioned in the book, what did you give the name of, of the head, the main guy in charge? You had, you had a, a pseudonym form in the book, which is really funny. I think I just called him top leader. You called him top leader. I was like, <laughs> Because my, I, I, if you're from our organization, you know who top leader is. But I think it's funny how you mentioned, like he said, hey, sister, or whatever, because my mom has a story with, with him too. Yeah. And I think she mentioned this in her episode. She might have. No, she didn't. She had her mom. This was in the early days of our LA, of our LA ministry when they were 
my age, yeah. mid late twenties. Um, and she had her mom from Seattle come and just come to a service downtown LA just to see how our church is like. Yeah. And her mom was, was a Catholic. And at the end, her mom just was told her like, yeah, it was case nice. It's not my, not my thing. She yeah. made it clear yeah. it wasn't her yeah. thing. But yeah. You do you. And at the end, top, top leader came over yeah. to her and said, so what what do you think? And my mom goes, oh, she wasn't, you know, she wasn't quite a, a fan of it. Um, it wasn't her thing. And then top leader said something along the lines of, oh, time to cut the apron strings, sister. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and like, it's, it's, that's, that's the same kind of idea. It's the, the simplistic, like, oh, that's the answer. Oh, well, it doesn't fit. Time to move yeah. on and cut it off and move on. Yeah. And that right there, if she had allowed, followed that, that could easily have led to so much grief of that yeah. lost relationship where at, at the time, it would have been the necessary action to do, I guess, for whatever her current expectation was. But years later, it would have been like, wow, I lost that relationship for this church because they told me to because she didn't like it. Yeah. But yeah, it's so interesting to me, that dynamic. I mean, it's so, it's going to be so damaging, too. I was so enamored with the church. I just thought we were the, yeah. just the best. I mean, the singing and the fellowship and the buzz, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I always I invited people all the time, all the time, all the time. And, and my family members sometimes. And um yeah, I just expected everybody who came would just feel the same way about it. It was always kind of a shock. Yeah. Didn't like it. Like, what, really? What, what's wrong with you? <laughs> like, you have some weird taste because this is everything you'd want. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. Back to the Catholic Church after seeing this. Like, right. Okay. So I want to talk about the letter. Dun, dun, dun. Um, if you're listening to this and you're a part of our, you have been or are or were a part of our church organization, the odds are you have heard at some point of the Crete letter. And I grew up, I mentioned this being just mentioned of the Crete letter and the Crete letter, like, oh my gosh, it was this letter that, that had such a, such a, a vast impact on our church organization. And I'm so happy to have you on because at least for anybody I know, we never met you guys. We never met you or Henry. We knew of these legendary figures of the Cretes somewhere and the impact that it had. But None of us had gotten any account of what actually went on before the letter. What led to the letter? Before, after, personally, we just yeah. knew. Oh, these people produced this thing that ended up doing this, and yeah. I think it's so interesting to get this insight from you. I'm because I'm myself. I'm so curious. So I know a lot of listeners are going to be so curious to just hear your account of things. So I want to start off by saying now, obviously, this letter had a massive impact on our church organization as a whole. It did so many things in our church organization. But can you kind of give some context for those who don't know of the letter, of its purpose, of kind of what it was and why it was written. Yeah. Well, so the letter was written by my husband. Yes. You know, it was basically, there were a lot of things that were starting to concern us as the church got bigger and bigger and things got kind of crazier and crazier. There were a lot of things that were really concerning us about how the church was being run. And mm. there was a huge emphasis on on growth, on numbers, and it reached the point where, like, every church everywhere around the world was had to collect statistics every month and send them into yeah. top leader. And he would he would rank everybody based on the size of your church. Your ranking was there, and it get sent mm. out to all the evangelists. And people would look up, where do I fall in the rankings? And it was everything. It was like your your, your attendance and how many people were baptized this month, how many people fell away, how many people were yeah. weak, how many people what was your contribution? Did you reach your goals? All this yeah. stuff just crazy, crazy numbers. And it was really fostering a very, very unhealthy, toxic culture of competitiveness. And, mm. you know, we're wanting to, rather than thinking of, you know, we're here to, we're here to preach the gospel and the results are up to God. It was more like, we've got to crank, we got to crank, that was the word used. we got to crank the ministry yeah. because we don't want to be down low on the, on the list of rankings. We want to even be first on the list. Right. Right. So 
that you know that whole thing was going on and along with it there's just a lot of really kind of shady things we heard about like how how leaders would kind of fudge the numbers and hmm. yeah just a lot of stuff that was just really in your book you mentioned what okay you gave, you gave an example of you talked about when a leader would step down and a new leader would take their place they would oh yeah the proof with the numbers can you ex- explain that that was wild <laughs> yeah yeah so a lot of times so if, you know obviously in every ministry you're not not everybody that it gets converted is going to stick around. So, but if, sure. if, a, if a zone or a region, whatever was having a lot of people falling away or leaving mm-hmm. that reflected very badly on the leader, he was, no matter, didn't matter what the reasons were, it was just basically all fell on the leader. Yeah. And then there's a good chance if that went on for very long and he'd be replaced by someone else who would do a better job. Right. So there, that's a lot of reasons people moved around. So when the, but what they would often do is when the old leader was leaving, they would, take they would look at the membership list and take off a bunch of people and say these people are no longer faithful they're weak whatever and and they'd be kind of taken off the membership role because they weren't you know they weren't at level 10 yeah and then when the new leader came in you know his first primary goal was to go back to these people and have these you know study talks with them and and get them to what was the word to to restore them to the fellowship restore them Yeah. yeah yeah So a lot of times these people, they never, they hadn't gone anywhere. They were still coming to church. They right? hadn't left. They were yeah, still yeah, there. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they were missing the odd midweek or something, right? But it, yeah. maybe they were sick. Who knows what? But anyway, but they'd have, but they'd be counted as a fall away with, with the previous leader because his mm-hmm. name was already Mud, so whatever. And then the new right. leader coming in could start having this tremendous growth because all of a sudden these, all these people are being restored to the fellowship. And they'd be counted as new converts, yeah. which is yeah. insane. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of that going well, on. There was, there yeah. was just so so much of that that was. I mean, we can laugh about it now, but it was very very sick. Yeah. And I, you know, I want to say, it, not that Henry and I were blameless, but we really, I, we never took part in the pruning ourselves. Yeah. I, I really tried hard. Like I love to study the Bible with people. I love to help see people become Christians. But I was very hard line about. I'm not going to baptize someone just because I need to need to have a baptism. Right. Anyway, so that was what that, a lot of the issues had to do with that. Just that uh, competitiveness, that worldliness. Yeah. A lot of the you know, we we had been with a lot of the the top leaders were called world sector leaders. We've been with most of those people were in place in Boston when we first moved there. So we went way back with them, and yeah. you know, a lot of them had gone out. I think with really sincere hearts, and yeah. then come back older and had families now, and they moved back to the states. And there was materialism coming in too. Right? A lot of them mm-hmm. moving into the nicest neighborhoods, the nicest suburbs, whatever. And right. yeah, so all of that. And that was so different from where we started out. Like when we started out in Boston, everybody was just like living on peanuts and, you know, Kip yeah. lived in a tiny little, the leader lived in a tiny little house. and Peanuts uh, and ambition. Yeah. He, Godly yeah. ambition. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it was, it was just different. And so these things were really concerning us that, that there was a, just a real, a, a lack of integrity, a lack of spirituality, a, way too much focus on what we could do and not enough looking to see what God would do. And mm. these things were brewing for a while in, in Henry's heart and other people, we had talks with people about them and, and not, we certainly weren't the only people that would were alarmed about these things. But sure. when we got to London, the church there started going through, it basically imploded. And a lot of these issues were, were sort of being addressed. And we were, the, we were kind of there, we were new there, but we knew these, a lot of them from, we have relationships with a lot of them from before. And we kind of had front row seats to watching this, this large church that was actually one of the first, first church planting out of Boston that was international, watching it 
just sort of go belly up and imploding. And these open forums were taking place and people were confronting other people and whatever. And it was in that context that Henry was like, yeah, I need to, I, this needs to, this is not just London church having a problem. This is like, this is going to happen mm-hmm. around the world if we don't get, if we don't dig out the, the rot. And yeah. so the intention of the letter was basically to, uh, to kind of sound the alarm and say, look, this is what's gotten into our, our fellowship. This is what, you know, these are the things that are damaging and ungodly and unholy. And he wrote the letter, really addressing it to 70 of the kind of the other main leaders and elders and so on. And naively, I guess, was hoping that by sending this letter to them, that enough of that group would say, you know what, mm. we do need to start addressing this. We do need to start getting the sin out. We do need to get back to a more godly approach to this. Yeah. And that was the intent of the letter was to go to those 70. What happened was, it was virtually ignored. Like none of them, very, just a few people responded. First response yeah. was, uh, was a rebuke to us. That they, were, they were being very ungrateful to even write something like that. And then yeah. a couple of leaders were kind of like, yeah, I, I, I agree with what you're saying, bro. But they didn't, <laughs> didn't follow up with much action on that. And it kind yeah. of basically just felt, it was just kind of like, like I thought when Henry pressed in, I was standing next to him, we prayed about it. I thought, Okay, this is probably our death sentence. They're probably going to kick us out. Sure. And that's a big price to pay. But if it does bring some change, then we'll pay the price. Hmm. I never in a million years envisioned that it was going to go out to around the world and that it would become so public so quickly. Right. That it was going to have a domino effect basically everywhere it went. So that's right. basically, yeah. So the intent behind it was basically to, to basically sounding an alarm and saying, Look, guys, this is we we've fallen we've fallen from a great height. We really things need to change, or th- you know, God's just going to be judging us. We're gonna we're gonna be under the wrath of God. Yeah, like there's some things we're seeing, and hopefully by verbalizing them, the people who also see it will resonate, and the ones who don't, hopefully, will begin to. Yeah, yeah, but that didn't happen, and so then, um, no. so then Henry decided to give the London Church within crisis mode, and he decided to give out there was a each each region and zones selected some members and a staff, a staff member and some members from their from their region to represent them. And there was these meetings that were being held to sort of try to work through some issues. And Henry just wanted them, I, I think in London, everybody was thinking, this is our London problem. This is London leaders, our past leader, this person that pointing fingers a sure. lot and not recognizing it. No, this is not a London problem. This is a worldwide church organization problem. This is a, a bad root that's everywhere in, in our group. And yeah. he gave a letter out to, I think it was about 50 people in that group wanting them to just see that okay this don't just point fingers at your brothers and sisters this is this is how we've been taught this is how we've been discipled this is how we've been yeah and um yeah it's it's pretty bad but we all need to you know we need to recognize that it's not you know it's not joe leader over there didn't cause it this is right it's not the london issues it's our church issues totally yeah and there was a brother in that group that very very zealous and very very upset about everything and one of his close friends had been part of the church for a while and then had committed suicide and he blamed mm. it entirely on the church. And he's like, my friend killed himself over this. This is so important. I I want to, I want to put this on the, I want to put this online so other people can see it. Mm. And Henry talked to him. It's like, not yet, bro. Not yet. Like I, I'm, I'm prepared for it to go wider, but not, I really want to give the top leaders time to respond to this. And yeah. The brother would not be dissuaded. And he put, he posted it online. And I, that was the first, I never, I never knew what, going viral meant I right i wasn't even online myself at the time so this was what year 2003 yeah yeah 
so yeah so he posted it and it it went viral and all of a sudden it was a worldwide happening and i just imagine if it, it went it's it went that viral and it's so long lasting for then if it went if it happened nowadays yeah it's amazing but i can't even imagine it going much larger in terms of our, reach, our church yeah. than it did because it, it reached everywhere it did so huh. that's what happened so then you know churches around the world started and again it varied from place to place with you know how, yeah. the, how the leaders view the letter whether they were going to acknowledge the things that were being said in it or whether they're going to deny, deny them and some places there was a lot of denial going on other places yeah. there was humility but it just led to a lot of people leaving the church and a lot of people that were in the ministry either choosing to leave or being laid off so yeah i think it's also very interesting i guess you've got two thoughts that kind of connected one is it's interesting how because for those who don't know and if even if you're from our organization but haven't seen the letter it's not a short thing it's not like an email 40 pages 40 40 pages pages. it's a dissertation and so it's not like when when these top leaders when most of them didn't respond it wasn't like oh sorry i missed your email it it was it was a big it's just deliberate, deliberate a big stuff. thing. So the silence, it's not a silence of unawareness. It's a silence no. of intention. Silence of if maybe we say nothing, it'll go away. Maybe. Right. Yeah. And unfortunately for them, it did not go maybe. away. No. And, okay. Do you, the question I'm thinking about here, do you believe that if it hadn't been put on the internet and gotten out that way, that it would have? Because uh, I feel like, at least the context I'm understanding is, the leaders didn't, didn't seem to do much to, to, to make awareness of it. They wanted to shut it down a little bit. So I'm thinking of, if it didn't go through the venue of the internet, do you think it might have just stopped? Or do you think it might have gotten out still? I think it would have, I think it would have gotten out. I think maybe it would happen a little, bit, a little more slowly. But, you know, sure. it's, our church is such a network. Like, we are so... So connected. Even pre-internet days, we are so connected. Yeah. And I don't think people in the world can appreciate how much that... that how true that is right but we are super connected yeah. so yeah i think it would have and i think yeah i don't i often wonder like i don't know what how the whole london church thing would have been interpreted by other by other churches that weren't there because I, yeah. I still talk to christian members today that had no idea how dire things got in london like the, the london the uk churches had 102 people on staff and within just a couple of months maybe three months or so every single person was Made redundant. That's the British term to be fired. Oh my gosh. Made redundant. Yeah. Made redundant, except for two. And that was the administrator. Wow. His job was to go around and tell everybody they were being made redundant and figure out their yeah. severance package. And then the uh, the guy that was doing the children's ministry, he was the last one to to be let go. But mm. the, So imagine, like, I mean, the entire staff and these people, a lot of them had been on staff for maybe 15 or more years. Sure. That was their entire thing. That was their, life. That was their yeah. career. Yeah. 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 So I don't think people realize how bad that, and then that had nothing to do with the letter. Like that was going on while we were right. there. And in fact, the funny thing, the ironic thing is when Henry passed out the, the letter to the, that group of 50, I don't think they even looked at it because they were, they were so deep into what was going on. Right. There. Oh, Henry gave us a hand. I don't know. I'll read it later, right? but I don't think it, right. it really didn't play a part of what was going on in London at all. It was kind of just an aside for them. Yeah. Just more, more noise at the moment. Cause there's a lot yeah. going on already. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And I'm sure in many ways, the timing of that, once it got out and people started reading it, that those who were aware of what was happening in London only increased the um, appropriateness, the, the timeliness of it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's going, here's the letter of all the issues and here's exhibit A of what happens, yeah. almost, um, which wasn't planned, but it kind of happened like that. Yeah. 
Well, one more. I'm kind of curious too. This is kind of a question for me. I'm curious about it. Um, what during when it, okay when it was being written, was it a thing where Henry had the idea and started on it for a while and then said, "Here, I have something," or was it like you talked about it and said, "Oh, we have an idea. You should write this letter." Um, no, he, he was he was pretty much doing it. He was actually so. What happened in London is things started to erupt in November, December, and yeah. in January. The members were really unhappy with, with the, the way things were going, and they all stopped giving their contributions. So basically, <laughs> that was kind of how the, the rigs got pulled. But the members yeah. were told, uh, the, the staff were told in January to stop doing the ministry, which is the weirdest. Like, I'd never been told that in my life. It's always the opposite, right? <laughs> crank, crank, crank. Yeah. But we were all told to stop doing the ministry until things were worked out. And so we had this time, right? So a lot of us were getting together on staff and talking about things and whatever and trying yeah. to think out and Henry at that point was like I'm I'm going to write this letter and Henry wasn't so quick on the keyboard so he had a sure. young intern brother come over and he was dictating it so I, for, for days I'd be walking and walk through the house every time I walked through the room Henry would be dictating his letter to the brother who was helping him oh so he didn't that's interesting he I love just yeah. I mean, once again growing up hearing of this hearing yeah. how it came to be is so interesting to yeah. me because that's like in those movies of the guy with the pipe and the glasses saying, yes, oh, yes. He's saying these words, the guy at the computer doing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The guy's transcribing. Yeah. Kind of like that. Huh. Like, yeah. But anyway, so yeah. So yeah. it's funny because, because later on then people tried to discredit or they were let, there was some rumor going on that it wasn't Henry's letter at all. It was actually this young brother who, you know, mm. he wrote it and then he just put Henry's name on it to give it some power. Or, <laughs> some credibility. But it was definitely all Henry. Yeah. And so I wasn't, and we were, I don't think he and I were really talking. Like we had talked about all those things at length before he started sure. writing, but I don't, I wasn't, I don't remember talking to him as he was writing letters. Kind of like he's doing that. Um, yeah. I'm just trying to, I was in shell shock, like watching mm. what happened in London was just like, it was like all of a sudden being dropped into the middle of a civil war. And thinking, yeah. how did this happen? I was shocked. I was hurt. I was grieving. I was. Yeah. It's so, it's so real all of a sudden. It's like, yeah. wow, that's yeah. happening here. How can we go from this great unity and whatever purpose and, you know, to a state where, the, you know, there's so much mistrust and lines being drawn. And yeah, it was just, it was really, really painful to watch it. Yeah. But I do, I do remember going over it, like reading it through before he sent it. And I definitely remember standing beside the computer and, you know, praying before he pressed send. That's so interesting to me. Yeah. And I, but I really thought this is, this is going to fall on us. I didn't, I didn't picture it. Yeah. How, um, cause the internet was the internet, but it was still just the connectedness of social media was, was not there. So yeah. how between that time where it was sent out, like how long before you guys realized, oh, this is going to be lasting for a little while here. Cause it's getting out. Yeah. That's a good question. It was probably, it was kind of spreading without us realizing it. So we, so we, we were made redundant along with everybody else. And we were actually, we were offered the region that, or the, the zone or whatever that we were leading, offered to hire us back and pay for us out of their own pocket kind of thing. And if we wanted to mm -hmm. stay. And we we considered that for a while, but I think I was just in so much shock and turmoil and so yeah. burnt out. And there were some other family reasons, whatever, that I just, uh, we decided it's time to just leave London, right? So. So yeah. yeah, so we left. The letter came out in February. We left London in April, and I don't know that I was that aware during that time how much it was how much was going on in the states with it. But yeah, yeah, I don't, I, I don't really can't really remember like when it when, when it kind of clicked that hey, this is this is huge. 
and this is yeah. going to go on for a while. And yeah, but just the talks just did just didn't end. Kind yeah. of, or just yeah, kept being presented up. See, yeah. See what a, what a lot of the churches did, and they got they got the letter. The leaders got got wind of the letter. The members demanded you know a hearing, an open forum, and so the leaders decided. A lot of them just kind of wrote out a, an apology, kind of a blanket apology for all the wrongs they were done, and and yeah. read that to the church and hoped that that would be enough to um, appease everybody. And of course it wasn't because it wasn't thorough yeah. enough. It wasn't, first, in a lot of cases, it wasn't genuine enough. Yeah, for how deep the assertions were of what was going on, the response didn't... Yeah, can't just get up and say, oh, sorry, yeah. yeah. But if you told me back then that we'd still be talking about this... <laughs> right. Are you like you're hoping for an impact, but probably had no idea that it oh, would still no be... no idea. No idea. And people in my generation and younger know of... If I say the Crete letter, they'll go, oh, yeah, I know the Crete letter. It's like, wow, yeah. like, wow. Wow. Yeah. So then we well, we landed back in Canada, decided to come back to Canada. Mm-hmm. We'd been out of the country for 20 years. And we came back. And then I remember Henry setting up his computer, you know, once we got a place to live and setting up his computer. And then he was just bombarded, bombarded <laughs> with emails from mm-hmm. all over the world. And he spent like Santa Claus. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Santa Claus in December. Yeah. 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 He was just getting letters from everybody. So he was very, very thick in it for a long time, responding to people and trying to. And I wasn't, I was kind of just, I was sort of just detached. Like I couldn't, yeah. that's my way, I guess. I, I, it's my pattern is, you know, I just, how I deal with painful grief is I just detach myself for as long as I can. Yeah. And that's normal. I think for a lot of people too, because it's, it's a lot yeah. to deal with. Yeah. Especially when it's coming from multiple, multiple angles too. Yeah. Okay. So kind of going off that, what you were saying just now. So we talked about the impact it had on the large organization. I'm curious how the letters release and the effects of it immediately. And even to the, I don't know, to this day, I don't know, but immediately. And, and yeah, as it got, yeah. as it kind of permeated those levels, what was the impact it had on you on a personal level and on the context, maybe yeah. your personal church life immediately around you too? Well, yeah. So we, we, we prayed about what to do. We decided, you know, we would just trust God. We would step out of the ministry for the first, like that's all Henry had ever done. It's only, you know, oh. I had jobs before I was like, I was a waitress and you know, whatever, but that yeah. was my, that was my career as well. My, my calling. And, you know, I love the ministry so much that I never dreamed that I would make a choice to leave, hmm. but it just seemed like that's what we were called to do. So we came back, we decided to go to Vancouver area because three of my brothers live in the area and wanted to be around family for once. Yeah. So we started going to the Vancouver church. Another thing I want to say is that we never wrote the letter thinking we're going to write the letter and then we're going to leave. Right. Sure. It was more like we were still, this is still our family. Yeah. We're going to write the letter and hopefully we're going to help work through this stuff. Right. Right. So we moved back to, to Vancouver. We start going to the Vancouver church and um, the evangelist that was here in Vancouver at the time was just so freaked out hmm. that that of all the places in the world that Henry Crete could <laughs> land after the letter, why does he have to come to my, right. my neck of the woods? That's yeah. funny. And so, yeah. And he's apologized since then, but he, he really, his way of dealing was kind of like mine was just utter denial. Like he just tried to pretend that we weren't there. Yeah, It was the weirdest thing because we used to always go to through, through Vancouver when we did trips home, we'd go to Vancouver and then we'd go visit my family, family cabin or whatever. Yeah. And so we, we were used to going to the Vancouver church and we'd always be asked to, to teach or share or whatever, preach, whatever. And we did that. And this time we're going back there and it's like, we were invisible. Like <laughs> no mention. Yeah. We were the two elephants in the room. No mention that they're here. It was very weird. Hmm. So, yeah. So um, that was strange. And yeah, we kept going to the Vancouver church for a while. It was very awkward. We still had, we had friends there. We had a lot of people that were 
very warm and friendly. And we had some super zealous brothers that kind of wanted to take Henry and make him king. And he was like, no, I, I didn't come here to King Henry. I'm not here to yeah, I'm not here to divide or I'm here just to be I'm here to just yeah. worship God and be a fellowship. I don't I don't want that role. And then there were some, you know, there were people that I think probably just tried to not engage with us at all. Yeah. So yeah, it kind of went like that. Eventually the leader there invited Henry to teach a midweek class. So we started doing that and it paid us a little stipend. But the weird thing for me was that we had, we ended up in and out of Vancouver for a few years and Henry was never once asked to do anything on, up front on Sunday. Mm. He never led a prayer, never did a communion talk, certainly never preached. Yeah. So there was kind of this like, okay, I'll let you do it. I'll let you do a class at midweek. And maybe that was to appease the people that were saying, why isn't, why aren't you letting Henry do anything right. here? The notoriety is right here and he has the qualifications yeah. for what he's, yeah, right. But he's, I mean, Henry's like, he's a very, he was a very beloved. Yeah. For a lot of people, for years, I still hear like Henry's like a lot of, a lot of members. He was one of their favorite hmm. speakers in Crete. He's a very colorful, great speaker. And so people wanted to hear him, right? Yeah. They weren't wanting the controversy, but they wanted to hear Henry's right. preaching and insights, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So it went like that. And then, um, and then eventually we, Henry got an opportunity to, to lead a small congregation that was not directly with our group of churches, but kind of historically has some connection. And we went off to do that. Hmm. So we never really formally left or formally came back. It just kind of yeah. happened that way. Hmm. And we still had relationships with many, a lot of the members were good friends oh, sure. and we still were engaged with them. And yeah. Do you, you mentioned, I mean, mentioned talking about like uh, kind of being treated like you were invisible. I, I was curious yeah. the effect of that personally, because you mentioned before how your, your response sometimes is to kind of draw back a little bit. Did that, that treatment of, of not being put, I not, not center stage, but not being put in that spotlight, was that painful? Was that somewhat helpful for you? Or was it a mixture of both in different contexts? You know, one thing that happened that was, again, I thought it was kind of strange the way it went, but I, I had lots of sisters reach out to me and want to spend time or whatever. Yeah. But I don't remember a single sister in the church asking me one question about what happened in London or why we ended mm. up here or, or even, or even bringing up the letter directly, like it, even though it was still a hot topic, Yeah. none of the women talked about it with me. So yeah, I had these friends around, but we weren't talking about this. The biggest thing. thing, right? Yeah. And the, the London thing to me was like, it was like I'd been in a war and watched, watched my friends die in that war and nobody was mentioning it. So yeah. that was I think that really was harmful for me because I didn't have anybody to talk about the stuff with. And I, and Henry and I weren't even, I guess we probably talked about some, but he was so engaged with everybody was phoning him and calling him sure. and reaching out online. He was doing it full time. And then a bunch of uh, members in the New York church started paying for him to come out every couple of weeks yeah. and just meet. And he did that for months and months and months, go back and forth in New York and um, meet with the group in Brooklyn, I think, and a group in Manhattan. But that was fantastic for him because they were all processing things and he got to be a part of that yeah and he got to process things with them and i was not part of that at all so yeah. i was just like i felt like i think i wrote this in the book i felt like i was in the witness protection program yeah. and then i just come out of this crazy life and nobody had a clue that that was my former life and now i was here and i was just trying to blend in with the average yeah citizen a new name new id card new driver license yeah that's what it felt like yeah and and i that you know I wasn't talking about any of it with anybody. Yeah. So that for me was, that, that was not helpful. That, right. that allowed things to, I think, fester and get deeper. Because you weren't granted the opportunity just to 
verbalize it and work through it or whatever, yeah. or process yeah. with people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. One of those things where you're almost unwittingly forced to kind of keep it to your chest because it's, it's all this stuff, but yeah. no one's opening the door to talk about it. You're like, okay, I'll, I'll hold on to this, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I guess so. And then again, it's my, you know, I just kind of push me in my shutdown mode, which sure. you know, I'm pretty good at when I have to. So yeah, that's so interesting to me. Shutdown mode doesn't, yeah. doesn't end happen. Yeah, when, when forced to be there, if it's if it's your natural default to do that, then kind of letting you do that and not letting you kind yeah. of reach out of that can just really not help at all. Yeah. 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 Okay. Last question about the the letter. I, I want to know, in your eyes, and this can you know this is this is more of a subjective answer or question than an objective thing. In your eyes, being as how tied you were to the letter and its creation and watching it and seeing all the problems it was addressing, what do you believe the letter's ultimate goal was? And do you feel like that goal was accomplished or to what effect it was accomplished or not? Yeah, good question. I think, I mean, I think the goal was really to see change happening from, from the top down. Yeah. And hopefully in a way that would be peaceful and not too damaging to people. Yeah. And that, that didn't happen at all. I think, yeah, what ended up happening instead was it kind of became a civil war situation and had a lot of members against staff and things like that, ministry people. I think it ended up hurting a lot of ministry people really, really profoundly. Mm. And I think a lot of members maybe didn't have a lot of understanding of that or empathy for that. Sure. Um, yeah. They were in the mode of like, this is the fault of the leaders. And the leaders have no, they, they shouldn't be moaning about being hurt by this. It's their fault, right? Right. Yeah. I know it. I know it has, it did produce incredible changes everywhere. Sure. But I personally have not had the opportunity to go to those these places and see how things are. I, I've been, you know, the Vancouver Church is my only right. only congregation, and I guess we've had some some great uh, fellowship with the Calgary Church here too. But but yeah, it, it wasn't like the old days where I'd get to go places and see how things were going. So right. I just I can only go by what people tell me, right. and I know the church is way what I hear is things way less controlling. Hmm. Standards aren't aren't so impossibly high anymore for members. And I know a lot of a lot of older members are sad about how things have changed. I feel like hmm. a lot of good things about the good old days that they wish could be could come back. There was that That's interesting. That collective the, the zeal and unity and you know, when it was when things were fresh and young, uh, you know, I think a lot of us kind of mourn that that's you can't get that back. Yeah. Yeah. So hmm. I think, you know, I think. Satan used it to cause a lot of damage, but I I believe God used it to reveal more. Yeah. Yeah, to reveal more. Yeah. But that that's all I can really say. Like I yeah. would I do it again? Would I want to go through that again? No, mm. I wouldn't. Yeah, that's a good question. But, would you do it again? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I'd still want to see I'd still want to see those changes happen somehow. I don't know mm. how it could have happened. So I mean I think Henry and I were in a position where I think because we lived so many different places and knew so many members all over the world yeah and i think we were regarded generally as as pretty um as good leader like we were for the most part we, we weren't harsh we weren't yeah we really shied away from the whole you know imitate your leader thing we were into all and a lot of things we did really oh, different. yeah yeah a lot of things we were just kind of like, oh, not gonna do that so yeah. i think that gave us a measure of respect that that's what the people paid attention because other people had written letters before us too. Sure. Like we're the first, it wasn't the first letter. And since then people have too. Yeah. And since then. Yeah. But I think, um, the fact that we knew so many people and we're, we're generally regarded as reasonable leaders or whatever, yeah. um, 
that's what made people pay attention. Maybe there's a credibility there. No, I believe that. Sure. Credibility. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, it's, it's written by who? Oh, okay. I might read that. Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting insight. I like that a lot. It's really interesting to know. Okay. So do you have anything to say about, about anything more to say about what ultimately led or the series of events that led you to, and your family to leave the church organization? Or do we kind of cover that? Or do you have anything else to add to that? I guess what I want to say is we didn't, we never officially left. Yeah. Like we were kind of in a real limbo, limbo because yeah. nobody ever, we were never disfellowshipped. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think there are probably some people that would love, have loved to have done that. And, and you thought that, that may have been the outcome. You thought that might've happened after the letter came out. Yeah. 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 And that never did. And I think that's because those maybe who might've wanted to disfellowship us recognize that they get a lot of pushback from other people. That would have been a big decision. A big thing. Yeah. So we were never, so it's kind of like we were ignored, but not. Yeah. Yeah. So we never really, yeah. So we left, we left Vancouver physically because we went off to be a part of this other congregation. Yeah. And we were there for a few years. And then we went, there was a period where I came back to Vancouver for a little bit before we moved to where we are now. And I still have great friends there. And, you know, there was talk at one point, there was talk about bringing us, officially bringing us back, even though we hadn't been disfellowshipped, there was a talk about let's officially bring the creeps back in. Mm. If they would be, kind enough to apologize for the letter. Oh, wow. When, what year was this? Do you know? Um, Generally? Yeah, this would have been maybe maybe 2008 or seven so or eight. So quite a few seven. years after. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, hmm. yeah there was quite a few. There some, of the, some of the top leaders were having discussion about that, but we were just like, you know what? Yeah. We feel really badly about everybody who's been hurt through it. We've been hurt through it, but we can't retract what it's what we still believe to be true like yeah. if there were things we said that were wrong we would say we're you know we'll correct that but we don't see those things in the letter so yeah yeah we're sorry that it caused so much pain but we can't say we don't believe those things anymore yeah apologizing for doing it would undermine the good it's done almost yeah yeah i think for, i think for the members that feel because a lot of i mean henry still gets mail to this day he gets letters from people that he's never met that are like yeah i've been yeah. a member for the next number of years and just want to tell you, bro, your letter just set me free or <laughs> such, you know, like, yeah. So you don't want to just dismiss people like that. Or yeah. Disappoint people. Yeah. So anyway, we just basically said that we, we can't do that. So yeah, no, I'm glad. <laughs> we'll just stay in limbo land here. Yeah. Standing by our words and still loving, still loving the members so much. And yeah. Yeah. And did you wait, did you hear, did they tell you we're inviting you back? If you apologize, did you hear through the grapevine that they were saying that? We were actually contacted you in were. some meeting. Yeah, like a couple of leaders flew in to meet hmm. to meet with Henry. I don't know if I was in those meetings or not, but yeah. That's so it was, interesting. Yeah, it's kind of a kind of one of those back backdoor deal things, but we were just like, no, we can't. Yeah. We can't. Huh. Wow. Okay. So I wanna segue here a little bit. Okay, this is gonna be an interesting topic here because since being gone, this topic of conversation has been presented to me a lot more often from people who well, I'm finding myself in this world of people who like me are not have been there and haven't are gone mostly. Yeah. And I think it's because it's because they're more open to expressing their ideas about this con- this topic. And this topic is I'm yeah. talking about is this debate discussion of whether or not our church organization is a cult. Mm. And it's very interesting. I've had so many conversations about this, usually not invoked by me, but just I'm joining people's talking about it. And it's never that heated, but it's just like people bringing up points of, oh, I think it is because of this. And a cult's defined by this and these characteristics have this. And some people are saying, absolutely not. So I want to maybe preface this because I know for a fact that people are listening, 
I know for a fact there are people who, when I bring this up, are going to say, oh, it's absolutely a cult. I know for a fact people are going to go, what? You're even, you're even bringing that word up? It's so far from that. And I think that's why it's so interesting to talk about because if you're listening to this, disclaimer, no matter what side you fall on, you're going to agree with some stuff probably and also disagree. And I like that. Um, but I'm really interested to ask you because in your book, you have a chapter or two chapters where you discuss this perspective, like retroactive, or not retroactively, but um, from your perspective. Yeah, looking back, looking back on it. Uh, yeah, 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 looking back on it. Retroactively, yeah. Kind of for yourself, writing through and thinking through the different reasons why you think it might have been or what, what, what things might contribute to it being a, yeah, that, that was pretty cultish, cult-like, or other things saying, you know, that didn't to me feel like that. So my question to you is, what are some of your thoughts as to why our church organization, our former church organization, might be a cult? And what are some reasons as to why it might not be? Yeah, yeah. well, yeah, I do, I do devote quite a bit of time in my book to that. You do, yeah. I think the chapter is even called The Cult Question. Yep. Like, mm-hmm. Yes. You want to find zero in on that, that's where you find it, a lot of it. Mm-hmm. I should start, I don't, I'm not sure if I shared this in my book. I think I, maybe I did, but I just want to share something that happened when we were living in Africa. We were there for six years. And one of the reasons, well, we loved Africa for itself. We loved Nigeria and we loved South Africa. Just, we just loved the culture, the people, whatever. And we just were so happy to be there. But one of the things we loved about being there was we were kind of away from the rest of the the churches. We were on our own. Didn't have, we didn't even have a phone at that point. We were really out of contact. We didn't have computers. We were just basically on our own for months at a time. And then we'd have these discipling groups with you know, the other African church leaders, whatever. Um, and then we occasionally go back for a conference. But, but for the most part, we kind of felt like we're, we're, we're here on our own. We can do things according to our own conscience. Yeah. And if crazy stuff is going on in the States with the churches, we don't have to. We're kind of in our own little land here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, but we were hearing, and this was in the 90s, and we're early 90s. And th- there were a lot of things were getting kind of weird and strange at that point in church. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah, stateside, especially. Right. And we would hear stories like our, our, the guy who was discipling us would tell us, he'd go back a lot more often and tell us stuff that he was hearing. So one day he was telling us about, uh, he said, oh, you know, in, in some of the churches now in the States, they're collecting their contribution at midweek instead of Sunday. It used to be just pass the plate on Sunday, right? right. And they're doing that so that they, they do it in their, their Bible talk groups or whatever. And they do that so everybody's accounted for. Hmm. And they're actually using... They're taking up the contribution in plastic bags so, you, so that, that people can see what's being put into the bags. You did mention this in your book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And along with that was it. And so if, if someone's there and they've forgotten their contribution, they either have to go home and get the money and come back and give it. This is before direct deposit or whatever, right? Right, yeah. Or the leader of that group has to put in, you know, cover for them and he can get paid back later. later. But, mm. but basically contribution has to be met every week we have a goal you know and everyone's pledged this amount and yeah and i was like and i, I was just when i heard the plastic bags i was just like are you kidding me i yeah. said wow that sounds really cult-like mm. and i kid you not i made that comment and 48 hours later we were put on a plane and sent back to la to meet with top leader about our concerns about the c word like so yeah. okay so so okay so you this verbalization of that thought was to somebody it was, so, it was so alarming it was so alarming to the guy who was the guy who was discipling us who was had he was leading all discipling all the churches in africa okay but he heard me say that i think he probably 
talked to the guy who was discipling him. The travel up the grapevine. Yeah. And it was like, are you, are you, the Cretes are saying that? Oh man. And I think they recognize that, you know, these people could have some influence. Yeah. This is years before. Them. Oh, sure. These people, if they start having doubts, they could do some serious damage. Right. Mm -hmm. So they're sitting, you know, we've got a mess. Like you, you guys are going back to, going to fly you back to LA. Wow. And you want you to meet leaders and hash out your concerns. I mean, had, that was, that, that was one of them. There was a bunch of other stuff that. Yeah. Cause I, I didn't realize, I didn't realize when you, when you said, we were thinking, oh, this is kind of cold. I didn't, I didn't realize you said that to somebody. So that makes sense. Yeah. No, yeah. no it was the statement that got us on the plane. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's now, interesting to me. Okay. Yeah. Now, if that isn't cult-like, hmm. like, I mean, <laughs> the irony of that, right? If you raise the word cult and you get flown back to meet the top leader. Oh, there's no issue there. There's no red flags. <laughs> no, yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. So there are a lot of red flags. For huh. Yeah. Kind of funny. You know, look, look back on it. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, and the plastic bags were never really explained very well to me either. But but top leader, and you probably know this because you probably knew him. I I never met him, but I know of him a lot. So my my parents okay. my my parents knew him well. Okay, he is extremely persuasive. Oh yes, I know that. Extremely. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he could talk the socks off anybody. So yes, charismatic, good with words, everything. Oh, and he makes everybody feel he's got a gift to make you feel like you're the most important person yeah. he's ever met. And yeah, you know, anyway, he talked us down and you know, went back to Africa. But anyways, I'm just saying all that to say there were there were some red flags all, all along. There's a lot of things about the group that are very cult-like. Yeah. The degree of conformity and mm -hmm. the degree of control and the involvement of in every aspect of each other's lives. Yeah, the, um, the intense accountability is yeah. Yeah, yeah. All of that for sure. The reason that I back off from saying full-on cult has to do with our teachings. Like, I don't believe that, like, I still believe that what we taught from the Bible, I stand by, you know, yeah. a lot of what we taught was biblically true. And so I guess in my, in my mind, a cult, a cult necessarily has some kind of aberrational teaching that sure. sets them apart from everybody and, and clearly shows that they're a cult. But I, yeah. But were we cult-like? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, I think the longer people the more distance you get from it, the more perspective you get, the more you go, yeah, that was pretty weird stuff that we were doing, right? Yeah. A lot of it. Yeah. When you're in it, you don't really see it, right? As much. That's a big thing is, is you don't, I mean, like most people who leave or have left, like I've realized enough to say, I don't want to really be here right now. But then once you leave, you go, oh, I didn't realize how much I agree with my decision now to yeah. leave because there's a lot more things I didn't yeah. see as they were. Once you accept yeah. that it's unhealthy or different aspects are, then you go, oh, a lot more things fit in that category than I thought. And I realized. Yeah. 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 You suddenly have this freedom to do whatever you, as whatever you want. And it's like, yeah. you start thinking, wow, I never, you know, like even things like going to spend time with your family, like that was so, again, in a, in a full on cult, people were often told like, cut off all ties with your family, have nothing to do with them. They're the enemy, whatever. Yeah. And we never did that, but it was basically, you got to convert your family. And if your family doesn't become members, you know, you got, you got to treat them always like you've got to always be reaching out to them, but you don't yeah. spend a lot of time. And know those boundaries and, and it, yeah. it can result yeah. in distances and stuff like that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot yeah. of, I think, you know, I think so much regret for members have you know, realized that, wow, I, I never went back for, for my grandfather's funeral or I never, yep. I never spent more than X number of days with my family because I had to be back for church on Sunday or, yeah. you know, a lot of, a lot of things that we missed out on or and set a terrible example yeah. to our families. Yeah. And like, like I mentioned, my mom had that interaction with top leader who says, Oh, time to cut those yeah. apron, apron strings. Like, yeah. yeah. It's very, 
yeah, it's, 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 and I have my own thoughts on all this, but it's, just, I'm not going to say them all because I, I want to hear your thoughts on this, but it's very interesting. Like, I agree with a lot of it. Just, there are things that definitely fill those, check those boxes. Yeah. And there are some things that for me waver a bit. And I, I think that's the thing too, is I was talking with my parents about the other day and we were talking about how the fact that that question will never be answered of whether yeah. it's a cult or not. It just won't. People will believe it is. Some people will blow some, some media will say oh, it's a cult. Some will not. And I, I, but I think it, I don't think it matters really because in most aspects, because I think the bottom line is if there's enough things to register a discussion about it, then there's things that need to change and yeah. there's things that are yeah. clearly not healthy. So cult, maybe not, I don't know, maybe, but there are clearly things that, that are unhealthy and are damaging. And to me, that is all that matters because it's a recognition of, okay, that needs to be fixed or changed or looked at. Yeah. Right. So yeah. that's a great way to and labeling it will maybe make more awareness of it or more stark. Realize, I don't know. But just it, what matters is the awareness of it and the intention to try to do something about it. Or if that doesn't work, then tell people, okay, making aware that maybe this is the best place for you to be. Either one of those. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, very interesting to me. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, as I say, if you want to, if you Google us, we're absolutely a cult. We're on, we're on top 10, I think. Oh, if you, if you Google, you're in some, you're in some lists. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's interesting. And, and, yeah. and Recent events, there's been stuff going on that would, that's been a hot topic too. Yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I got a somebody review, but somebody that didn't know me at all, didn't know anything about the organization. Yeah. Read Box Must Be Empty and, and was very positive about it. Yeah. Got a very positive review. But one of the things she said at the end is that, you know, that, that I made no mention about the recent lawsuits hmm. yeah. going on and um, that she thought I should have done that. But I think she was unaware that when I was this, the lawsuits came out long after I finished writing the book. And, right. Yeah. And that, that aspect, what's coming out with those is really sad and tragic and I hope it gets yeah. resolved well, but that's not something that I was aware of. Yeah. I was going to bring that up. But I was like, eh, you know, whatever, but that's, that's, that's a big thing with all that. And it's interesting too, because our perspectives, you have the perspective of the, of the decades before and I have the perspective of more recent, yes. but we were both, yes, we're both not really attending there. So, so I was thinking as you were talking about the, about the letter and the effects and all that stuff, I was, I was thinking, yeah, like, there are definitely, because those spark conversations that are still going to this day and in, in regions that they took a look at that and there's things that are changing for sure. And then there's some for me, like for my ministry and a lot of the LA ones, it seems like, like the Crete letter was this thing that's there and happening, but yet, yet there's a lot of those roots are still there. And in our, my church, the letter in early 2000s caused us to break off from the rest of the LA churches of or churches. And in the intent to say, oh, we're going to start doing things differently. And it started out, I mean, I was young, but my parents' account of it was, it started out really starting to diverge a different path. But then the problem was the mentalities stayed the same. You tried to, they tried to fix some topical things, which helped for a little yeah. while, but the roots weren't addressed. Yeah. So by the time I left, 15 years later, it had gone back to the same way it was. Did it stay separate? Did it stay separate from Well, that? it's separate, meaning they still... They're still part of the organization, but they, it was almost like a rebrand where they, they changed their name and they don't really, we go to the same camps, we go to the same thing, we're all part of the same stuff. So I don't know what it meant by breaking off, but it just, it was more of like yeah. a, oh, we're going to break off, rename ourselves just to show that we're intent on trying to fix some things. Yeah. And I, I, I give credit to those, to the leaders who, I don't know if it was out of pressure or if it was out of an authentic desire to change things. It might've been a little mixture of both, but it's just sad to see that after all those years, it, it kind of divulged back to it. And that's what caused me and people to leave. So, but it's interesting how, how it w- varies from different. I only know my account of my church. So 
But yeah. it is very interesting to take a look at that. I just wanted, as you're talking, I just another thought came to me that lately I've, I've been getting, a f- Henry and I both get messages from people, especially with my book now, I'm getting hearing from more people yeah. out there. And we've had quite a few people that have just, that, this, that write and say, I just read the letter. Like <laughs> they were told when, when the letter came out, they were told not to read it by the leaders and they were, or they were afraid to read it and they didn't want to, they didn't want their mind. It would cause division. Yeah. Or, yeah. Whatever. And so for 20 years now, they've never read it. And then people, yeah, which that blew me away. Like yeah. really? now you're reading it. Yeah. yeah. That is, I mean, and it's still, I guess, fortunately and unfortunately, it's still poignant what they say in it. So yeah. the people who are still suffering from the effects of some of the things you're talking about, they find solace and some things in that that's like, oh, awareness. Oh, oh it's being verbalized what I'm thinking about. It helps them with their own mentalities about it. Yeah. But unfortunately, yeah. it's still relevant in many cases, you know, so double-edged sword. Okay, so I want to bring it back now to the main through line of my chapter in my book and this discussion about grief and that process of dealing with it. So in this chapter, I've kind of mentioned the chapter is basically a little bit of commentary and then me just kind of bullet point in paragraphs listing a ton of different good memories I have from growing up, different experiences talk about, oh, the youth camp and the the experience with, uh, uh, with this certain person doing this and the sleepovers at my house and these different things. And I list out a bunch of experience memories that if I was given the opportunity, I would go back to and experience again, knowing that I was at one, some point going to step out and not be able to experience those things anymore. Cause I didn't know. And that was going to leave my church until looking back. And, yeah. and I also list some things of people, people that I would say goodbye to and really get, get closure on those experiences on those relationships and on that time frame of my life. That's so, I mean, it was the majority of my life. I'm 24 and it was 19 yeah. years. So that's majority of, yeah. of my memory of life. Very formative years. Very formative. Yes. Very formative. And so my, my question to you is very similarly, if you were given that same opportunity for closure to go back, what are some experiences or memories that you would go back to and experience one last time? And what are some mm-hmm. things or people that you would say goodbye to? Yeah, good question. I would love to go back to the early days in Boston hmm. and be back with before there were world sector leaders when everyone's just like people interning <laughs> and living, yeah, people yeah. interning and living on peanuts and, and everybody was just so excited about the mission and yeah. so all in. Not that, you know, again, not that it was perfect. I'm sure there's things, yeah, I know there were things that. All right. And there's, there's a lens but, too, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, those were thrilling, t- a thrilling time to be there. And, yeah. Um, yeah, I definitely would love to revisit that. The early days, Toronto planting, church planting, we were there, there the first year and a half. God brought the most amazing people, mm. you know, into our into our fellowship in, in those in the first year, year and a half. And a lot of them are still very, very faithful still yeah. in, in and outside the church. But yeah. a lot of them, I'm in, I'm in contact with tons of those people. But yeah, just um, great, great friendships and great memories. A lot of fun. A lot of just, yeah, yeah. Um, of course, I'd love to go back to Africa, but I know yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't be the same so many years later as right. you know, change. But yeah, the, and Africa felt like in Nigeria, especially, it, it felt like really felt like a New Testament church. Like just mm. you know, there was no technology. Everything was we, we walked on foot. We all lived in the same neighborhoods, and we walked to each other's homes, and we had like temple court in the in in our big. We had a compound, and just every night we'd set up tables and we'd have Bible studies every evening for people yeah. to just drop in. And, just so cool it was really yeah sounds very present very present yeah very very organic yeah yeah 
Yeah. So I think, I mean, in every place, there's definitely great friendships and relationships mm-hmm. and memories I have. As far as what I would not want to go back to, staff meetings for the most part. <laughs> yeah. There were, there were some better ones and worse ones, but in general, I was never a, a big fan of staff meetings. And, uh, yeah. and, I was, and, and in some places, they were just awful. They were just so... We were speaking of organic, and that's the kind of the antithesis of that. Yeah. 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 They, and they were very worldly and very... Um, yeah. Yeah all this accountability and statistics and stuff going right. on. Humanistically uh, driven and material driven and work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, I even, you know, I've prayed, you know, I pray every week not to, to get sick on that day. So I wouldn't have to go. <laughs> so, yeah. Never a fan of that. Yeah. yeah. So staff meetings and you know, some of our, what we call, we used to call them D groups. Yep. It's where, uh, you know, somebody might be kind of, it's time to fix that person tonight. And that was, yeah. I, I never liked it. There, yeah. So there were some things like that. There's a few I think for the most part, I've made peace with everyone in my heart and, yeah. and I've reconnected tons of people since my books have come out. There's probably a few people that would that'd be a little uncomfortable for me to see, but yeah. for the most part, I think I've, I've made peace with it. So that's really good. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. But in general, I'd say the great memories greatly outweigh the negative ones, which yeah. that, that happened time, right? That's how our memories work. For sure. Yeah. And Part of me, I wish I could go back and relive some of those great times because they were really special. Yeah. So really, really felt God working in through us in us and these relationships that were just so profound and deep and connected. And I believe through the Holy Spirit that, mm-hmm. you know, I make friends today, but it's just, it's not the same. No, yeah. I, I know. I mean, talking about, I mentioned that that lens is, yeah, there were, I mean, part of my book is about, you know, when you realize things maybe weren't as healthy in certain parts you realize, oh, they were going on before I was aware of it clearly. And so, yeah. and most things I write about, my amazing memories, if, if I think back on each of them contextually, I'm like, okay, during that time, there was definitely stuff going down in the under, underbelly and the stuff and yeah. around. Yeah. But it's the bliss of ignorance. It's, it's yeah. I didn't know. And because of that, it didn't impede what I was experiencing then. Yeah. And so formative as you said so the people and the the people but also the, the dynamic of the world of we were in like the world not being the world but the world being our world is being in like middle school it's sundays and sunday afternoons and wednesday nights or tuesday nights and then friday nights and then saturday something and youth camps and whatever else and it's all encompassing yeah. and that's your world and those are your people who are doing it with yeah. you and there's a unifying aspect of that that's so cool and sticks with you even the people i don't talk to anymore it's like that was such a formative time and i i really loved it despite the things i now realize the things i now realize that taint it looking back but yet taint it on a as a as a package but that in of itself as a standalone experience is is held close to my heart you know yeah yeah and i you know i believe they're they're so many 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 really good-hearted oh yeah members that really lived wanted wanted to do this to please the, god the and, majority the vast majority yeah yeah and i i'll never not believe that so. yeah absolutely absolutely that's well said okay i got two more questions for you the first is back to the idea of grief what would you tell someone who is currently navigating their own grief especially in regards to their spiritual communities but also the personal lives the all-encompassing what would you say to them i would say that I want to recommend a book that I talk I talk about this quite a bit in my in my 
book, mm-hmm. the second memoir. It's called the Grief Recovery Handbook. I'm familiar. And yeah. yeah. And somebody recommended that to me years after I started my heavy grief. Somebody finally pointed me to that book. And um, I went to the library and I oh, cheapskated. And <laughs> I went out to the library. I, it's, it's a book that it's not a book just to read. It's a book that you have to. It's a short little book, but you read the first chapters and then it takes you through a series of exercises to process events and, and grief and episodes in your life yeah. and relationships. And I would say that I would, I would point people to that and say, if you feel like you're kind of overwhelmed or stuck or don't know where to start, that would be a great way to start figuring out for yourself, what, what am I dealing with here? Yeah. And one of the first things that asks you to do is they kind of chart a, a kind of a emotional history chart where you just start charting the highs and lows of your life. And of course, if you're doing that as a, a member or ex-member or whatever, you're going to have a lot of highs and a lot of lows on that. Yeah. Um, and start figuring out what are the relationships or what is it the whole is it the whole package that you have to unpack or is it are there relationships that you that have hurt you or whatever. Yeah. It'll give you a great structure to start processing things. And I would I would point people to that as a really a really great tool. And also just say that, you know, to start maybe reframing a lot of a lot of times I think we can be feel angry and numb or all different feelings and not recognize that really the root of what we're feeling is grief. Mm-hmm. And remembering again that it's not just someone doesn't have to die for it to be grief. It just has to be a loss in your life, any kind of loss. And I think a lot of what we're dealing with here is is loss. Uh, even loss of innocence, you know, disillusionment. Yeah. That's a grief. That's a grief, right? Like for me too. I mean, for so many years, I was just like, this group that I found, this church is, it's it, it's everything. Yeah. And if that bubble gets burst, it's it's a hard fall, right? Yeah. yeah. It's not just, oh, I was going to this good church down the street and I'm, I don't like it as much anymore. It's not like this was like, this was like everything. So much of you I, is in it. Yes. Yes. So I say, I, I would say, I point people to that book and I'd say, yeah, maybe, maybe try to reframe some of what you're dealing with as grief and see if it kind of resonates that way and give yourself time. Yeah. It profoundly helped me. It was one of the best things ever. Yeah. I love it. Okay. So last question here, and this is the question that I ask every guest on the show. And that is that this podcast and my book are all about our crumpled papers, which are the ideas and beliefs that we may have at one time believed with full certainty, but at some point realized we needed to reevaluate our perspective on. My question to you is, what is one or a few of the most important or biggest crumpled papers of your own that you've had to unlearn or gain a new understanding of? That's a very good question. I think the big one for me is you know, broadening my view of who are, who are other Christians out there, right? Hmm, yeah. Now, just to set the record straight here, I never, I never taught like we are the one true church sure but i did teach that these are the things that the bible teaches we should understand and know and do and you know faith in christ and repentance a full actual real repentance and yeah and baptism and, and then you know commitment and whatever devoting ourselves to the you know apostle teaching and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayer whatever yeah. these are the you know the characteristics that should define who's a christian but i hope there's a other people out there that are believe these things and, and are living this way because I, that's what i that's what i see in the bible right yeah um, so coming out of the uh, out of the church and then looking to, looking for another church to go to and be part of it's 
It's been very interesting because you don't see a lot of that out there in yeah. most churches. Yeah. So I guess just, I, I do think I'm gaining greater and greater understanding of God's grace. Mm. And I still wrestle with, I guess, with that question, but it's hard to just stop seeing things through that lens. We're attending a church now and I really like a lot of things about it, but I would just love to sit down with the pastor and just share a few. <laughs> yeah. See if he could use, you know, I don't know, deepen thing. I don't know. Yeah. That's the crumpled paper that I'm having a hard time tossing. Yeah, that's great. I think along those lines, something for me that once I left our organization had to take a look at and, and reevaluate a crumpled paper of my own, I guess, was how I defined a Christian, like you're saying, like like the the requirements or prerequisites or characteristics that I had been taught meant you were a quote unquote real Christian, a true Christian, right? And I mean many, many of those that we were taught, that I was taught growing up in this organization was was true. I still believe there are many, you know, biblically backed things that designate a characteristic of somebody that is a Christian. But I realized also there are many that that really tend to veer towards a legalistic, more rigid structural definition of a Christian that catered innately to tying that label to people that were only members of our church. And that was something that really skewed things because even if on paper, like the bullet point wasn't, oh, a true Christian goes to this church, which sometimes even was that blatant, but many times it wasn't. If it wasn't just that blatantly, it would often just be, oh, a true Christian does this, which just so happened to be a thing that our church did that perhaps not many other churches did. And if you have five different characteristics that define a true Christian, and each one of those five characteristics are in our church only or that and a few others, after a while, you realize that, oh, in order to really complete this whole list and have each box marked off, that's only possible through this church. And so, so upon leaving, you, you realize, or I realize that, man, there's a lot of people out here that are Christians that I perhaps may have been inclined to write off because of some formality that I see in them or hear from them or whatever, in, like right off the bat. And no, no, these people are, are Christians. And who am I to say who's a Christian? But no, they're living it. And they have a greater faith than I do. And they, are, they know God deeper. They have a deeper understanding and personal, intimate relationship with God than I do. And a greater picture and idea of who he is and how he works in their life than I do. They have a heart for God that's deeper than mine. And I would have taken that and said, okay, that's great. No, you're a good person. But, you know, Christian true Christian? I don't know. You can call yourself that, but I don't know if that's true. Where now I'm like, no, that definition is widened so much for me because God doesn't just work through our church. He works in many places and perhaps even more so. And I've said that in multiple episodes, but so I, I love that point you brought up and that evoked that thought for me. But that is all I got. Marilyn, I was so excited that I got to, that you were interested in coming on. And my, I told my parents, I said, Marilyn Creep wants to come on. And they said, no way. She's going to come on. That'd be so great. I'm like, yeah, it's going to be so great. So. I know there are so many people that are going to benefit from this conversation out of curiosity, out of dealing with grief, out of resonating with church community and turmoil and leaving and all kind of stuff. So 
this is going to be a great one for people to listen to, and they're going to really benefit from it. I know they are because I did. So thank you so much for coming on. Really happy that you're doing this. And I hope that you reach a lot of people and encourage a lot of people and help a lot of people find their way through this. Yeah. That's, that's why I do it. So thank you for that. You keep in touch. Yes, absolutely. Guys, that is it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I will see you next week. Until then, peace out. Thanks for hanging with us on this episode of the Crumpled Papers podcast. The episode may be over, but the conversation's just getting started. If you have any questions or comments, or just want to say hi, send us an email at crumpledpaperspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And make sure to follow us on social media to stay up to date with all things Crumpled Papers. All links are in the description. This is Austin, and I'll see you next time on the Crumpled Papers podcast.